hey, we're so glad that you're here. We are in the, the kind of the tail end, frankly, of a series that we're going through on through the book of Galatians. And Galatians is interesting. And one of the reasons it's so interesting, to me at least, is because Paul um, is writing a book to a providence, not to a city like most of the letters of the New Testament. And in writing it, um, he writes something that if you're a Christian, in fact, the longer you've been a Christian, um, the more that, that we feel like this is assumed information. Because he basically spends four chapters, of which we were at the very tail end of this morning, um, simply explaining the intricacies of the gospel. Now, the reason that's interesting to me is because, as Christians, we view that as foundational to our faith. We view that, view that as kind of square one to which we build, you know, two, three, four, five, six on. If it's a staircase, this is the first of the staircases. But Paul is writing this with extraordinary complexity, um, very intricately woven to... Christians. And the reason that that's significant is because in the life of a Christian, there is a float, interestingly, in fact, I would say in all of religion, there is a gravitational pull away from the truth of Jesus. And what I mean by that is virtually all religion functions this way. Believe in God and have a sense of morality. Believe in God plus morality. So it's belief plus morals, belief plus action, belief essentially plus behavior. That most of religion and most of what we interpret in Christianity is you believe and you behave. You believe and you behave. And if you don't behave well enough, then we question whether you believe. And if you don't believe but just have good behavior, we'd say you're missing the point. But what's interesting about this is Paul sees that the church of Galatia is struggling with the same issue that we struggle with now. In that, their thought was belief plus behavior. And what Paul is asserting throughout the entire letter is simple. It's belief alone, faith alone, that makes us right with God. And that is not to say as Christians we don't act in holiness, but here's Paul's point. We don't behave to earn God's favor. We don't behave to put ourselves in a spot where God says, man, did you see the fact? Holy cow, they stepped on a Lego and they didn't cuss. Are you kidding me? I am so happy with that person. That we behave because God is already happy with us because of what Jesus did. We don't behave, we don't act in holiness to please God. We act in holiness because God is already pleased inside of us because of Jesus. And he goes through extraordinary lengths to do this because I think inside of each one of us there is deeply ingrained a sense of believe and behave, believe and behave. In fact, um, this last week we were putting our our, our two-year-old Ava to bed and we read to her at nighttime because you know, we're just the most incredible parents in the world, obviously. Um, <laughs> no, we read to her, and, and uh, we were given this book that, you know, tells the story of Noah. And it was funny because as we're reading through, you get towards the end of it, and, you know, the animals are coming on and, and, and doing this whole thing. And it said, you know, basically God called Noah because Noah, you know, had, I don't remember how exactly it said it, but basically because Noah behaved really well. 
And I stopped, and like, this is, my wife makes fun of me about this, but whatever. Um, because I always do this like, this like theological revisionist when I go through kids' books. Um, and I said, because Noah believed God. And she, you know, afterwards is basically called me a nerd. Um, but that's okay, because, and here's what's interesting. This is so deeply ingrained in everything that we do, that you believe, behave, believe, behave, believe, behave. But when Jesus came to planet Earth, the message was so simple. It was that you can't behave. You can't please that we innately are sinful. And that's not a condemning thing as a, as, as a you're sinful, you're sinful, you're sinful, you awful people. It was we all equally have sinned. And God offers grace through his son, Jesus. And in fact, as Christians, we got this, a lot of us, that salvation. But then we lost it. In sanctification. In other words, we got it when we got saved, but we lost it as we tried to live into the life that God's called us to. Because this is why, for most of us, when we aren't doing well morally, we avoid anything spiritually. Right? When we aren't doing well morally, we avoid spiritually. If I'm not doing well in terms of, you know, perhaps, you know, you're a really good moral person and so you, you know, get everything right, but you just, you didn't spend enough, you prayed, but you didn't spend enough time in prayer. You know, you read, but you didn't, you didn't memorize enough verses in which we would say, man, that's fantastic for you. You should come preach because you're better than any of us in this room. But, you know, you just didn't do as well. Or perhaps you entered a season of life that you didn't think you would enter into, did some stuff that you never thought you would do. And because of that, all of us have the same tendency. That we avoid spiritually when we don't feel like we live up to morally. In other words, we feel like since we didn't behave right, our standing isn't right. In other words, we believe that our standing with God is based on our action, not our belief that inspires action. And so Paul's entire letter is to go over and over and over in every way and angle possible. And as he finishes his dissertation, as he finishes his entire speech on it, he gives one of the more refreshing and one of the more complex things that he writes in all this. There is so much assumed information. So if at any point you are here today, perhaps for the first time, you're new to church, on the periphery of church, I hope today is incredibly refreshing for you that you kind of get a real view of what being a, being a Christian is. But I hope at the same time I don't make this super confusing because Paul just launches into all kinds of stuff that is very, very complex. But I'm going to try to make it very understandable for us. All right, so we all on board? Okay, sweet. One woo. That's all I needed, honestly. That's all I needed. Okay, so if you got your Bible, you can open up to Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Paul, first verse, is going to talk about, um, basically readdress the, the, the subject. He says, first, chapter 4, verse 21. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law. That, that idea of under the law is significant. When he says under the law, that meant basically how they viewed the entire Old Testament typified in the Ten Commandments that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai that then kind of protruded into a lot and hundreds, in fact, hundreds and hundreds more laws that they would call the law generalization. So he says, for those of you who want to be under the law, pause, not obey the law, but under the law. The difference being, as Christians, again, we live in holiness, but we don't live under the law. We obey God because we believe God, because we are inspired to live like that, but we don't live under the law. In other words, we don't obey God because we feel like if we obey him, maybe we can please him. 
We're not under the weight of pleasing God. God is already pleased in us. He says, but for any of us who want to behave our way, behave our way, behave our way, moral our way, moral our way, moral our way, here's some things that you need to know. Number one, he says, do you not listen to the law? In other words, I'm about to tell you some stuff that you already know, he would say to them, to which us, many of us are a little bit unfamiliar with, that if you actually listen to the Old Testament, if you actually listen to the law, you would see it actually undermines itself in its need and its ability to save us. Verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Now, when he said this, they all knew exactly what he was talking about. For those of us who maybe, you know, weren't born and raised in, in churches or perhaps you're just not really super familiar with Abraham. Abraham was the godfather of what was then the Jewish, what became the Christian and the monotheistic Judeo-Christian thought. Abraham was like the first guy. He was the godfather, okay? So when they, when they said Abraham, this would be like if you got a bunch of people who are Florida State fans and they've been season ticket holders for the last 25 years and I ain't never missed a home game. You know, if you got that guy and those groups of people in the room and you said, it's like when Bobby Bowden in 1993, and everyone would be like, oh, yeah, I remember, you know. This is like, you know, when, when, when Charlie Ward threw the dump pass to, to um, not Peter Work, but Work Done, you know, and everyone would be like, oh, yeah, I was there. So which many of you are like, I wasn't alive then, bless your soul, okay? But... They were extraordinarily familiar with Abraham. And so when he said Abraham, they all said, yeah, we remember this story. And the story was that God made a promise with Abraham. In fact, more than a promise, he made a covenant with Abraham. A covenant was was a relational agreement. A covenant was... I am going to be your God, you're going to be my people. It wasn't specifically spiritual, but it was kind of like a relationship and a contract combined. Well, the relationship or the covenant with Abraham was that God said, Abraham, I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to give you a family. The family is going to become a great nation. The whole world's going to be blessed through it. And by the way, Abraham, this covenant, this relationship, like most relationships, are, are based on mutual agreement, mutual behavior. This relationship is going to be based off of my faithfulness, in light of, and in fact, in spite of, your un faithfulness so God made a promise to Abraham I'm going to bless the entire world through you through your family and through your lineage but the problem was Abraham was getting old and Abraham's wife was getting old and so the obvious is how can I have a family how can you bless through my lineage at this point in the story Abraham is about 86 years old. And Abraham is kind of talking maybe one day to his wife and he's saying, you know, I ain't no spring chicken young no more and, and I don't know if how this whole thing's going to happen. So his wife Sarah actually says, well, there's this young pretty chick named Hagar. Uh, or Hagar, that's how a lot of people pronounce it, but if you're from the south, it's Hagar. You know, if, if there's this chick, Hagar, and, and she's young and she's fertile and she's, you know, perhaps how God wants to provide is by you having a son with Hagar. Not with me. In other words, here's this providential promise. And we don't know if we can really rely on that. So why don't we take this into our own hands, into what's controllable to us? Abraham says, okay. They have a son through Hagar. His name's Ishmael. And about 14 years later, 
Abraham's 100 years old. And he gives birth, well, he doesn't give birth. His wife, Sarah, gives birth to Isaac. Now, for a lot of us, we sat around the Thanksgiving table and you have, you know, dinner with, you know, maybe your aunts and uncles and however old they were, your grandparents. My grandparents, you know, they're 89 years old, they're 92 years old. I want want you to imagine grandpa at 100 years old having a kid, okay? First off, the obvious thing is like, that's gross, right? Second thing in that is you would sit there and look and say, like, like Grandpa, you can't, you can't even crawl. And your kid's crawling all around. You can't catch up with a crawler. Like, that, that, Grandpa, that's not going to work. But God, supernaturally, and his wife, by the way, who's pretty old as well, which, you know, he talks about how old she is, but we wouldn't do that because we're more appropriate than that, you know, gives his wife, you know, this son, and they have this son through this very, very old age, um, extraordinarily supernatural intervention that they have this son, Isaac. And Isaac then becomes the seed that becomes the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel then grows up one day, goes across the entire world, and through this nation of Israel because this person named Jesus. And so Paul begins to speak allegorically about the two different sons. In fact, he defines that and says, this, by the way, is an allegory. In other words, for those of you guys who are wrestling with this like I am, let me tell you how to interpret it. It's allegorically. So he says, so there's two sons by this guy Abraham. One by the slave and one by the free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh. In other words, according to the own internal efforts, according to the controllable, according to the behavioral, according to the what I can earn in my own accord. While the son of the free woman was born through promise. In other words, the son of the, of the free woman was because God made a promise that only God could deliver on. God did something that only God could do through Sarah having Isaac. Verse 24. Now, and thankfully he said this, this may be interpreted allegorically. I feel like he's writing that saying like, man, in 2017, y'all going to wrestle with this. If I don't just add this little intricate piece in there, that this, this is an allegory, so let me define this for you. These women are the two covenants. Now, the two covenants, the two covenants that he was talking about are essentially a covenant of, of grace and a covenant of works, a covenant that you would and I would, and one end in a relationship with God, have to behave our way into his good graces. That God has a standard, and his standard is perfection, and if we are going to behave our way, and if we are going to moral our way into God's good graces, then we have to be perfect. They would use the idea of Mount Sinai, because that's where Moses got the Ten Commandments as an example to typify or to be an example of the idea of this covenant. He says, so there's two different covenants here. One is behaviorism. One is moralism. One is the law. One is Mount Sinai. And the other one is the free woman. The other one is the covenant that was created through Jesus, where we come to the realization that we, in our inability to earn our way into God's good graces, are given reconciliation and justification, are reconciled to God, are justified, not simply say you're forgiven, but you are innocent in sight of God, regardless of what you've done and regardless of where you've been. So he says, these women are two covenants. One 
is Mount Sinai. In other words, one is typified, it's the law, it's the Moses. And then he says something that for us is just kind of like, okay, well, I don't, that, that's not terribly impactful. But for them, everybody probably stopped as he said these next words. One is Mount Sinai, bearing children of slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds to present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. (laughs) To which none of us thought, wow. But for them, Jerusalem was the epicenter of religious life. For them, Jerusalem was the place where they looked as the holy place. They looked as the spiritual place. They looked, as a Paul speaks into it, he says, and if you're looking for a modern example of this, of this earn your way, earn your way, earn your way, earn your way, it's Jerusalem. To which they all would have stood back and probably just jointly been offended by this. And Paul said, let me just, let me just tell you. The way of religion speaks to this idea of Hagar taking matters into her own hands and having Ishmael. It speaks to the the covenant given to Moses at Mount Sinai that these are all the laws. If you want to earn, if you want to take it into your own hands, here's the behavioral requirements. And Paul is saying, look, this exact same thing is happening now in Jerusalem. You want to try to earn your way? Good luck. He continues. He says, for she is in slavery with her children. By the way, we're going to get into a lot of this next week, but that's how you know when you feel a sense that you are religious. This is how you know that you feel a sense that oftentimes we fall into this category of behaviorism and moralism is because when we think about God, we feel like it's a sense of bondage. It's a weight. We don't feel free. But the Jerusalem above, interesting concept. He says, but the Jerusalem, but the kingdom of God, but the people who are of the kingdom of God, but the Jerusalem that is above is free. And she is our mother for it is written, and says something, let me just say this, when you're reading the Bible for the first time and you get to this part, you read that and you think, I have no clue what it has to do with anything that he just said, this is just, just, just wacky, and let me go on to you know, Matthew or something like that. But this is, this is so extraordinary, because the principle that he unearths in what he says, as he reaches back and ties in Isaiah to this whole deal, and this is what he says. He says, rejoice. O barren one who does not bear. Now pause. In their day and age, a woman who could not bear children practically had no value. That was the predominant purpose for women in their day. And so as he's speaking to this, he's saying, hey, for those of you who your purpose in life was to have children, which is not what he says undermines that, that's not the sole purpose of women. It's a different sermon, different day. Anyways, as he says this, he says, you know, hey, Rejoice in your barrenness. Rejoice in your inability. Rejoice in the realization that you aren't good enough. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. Which all the ladies would say, amen to that, you know. For the children of the desolate one 
will be more than those of the one who has a husband. <laughs> we would say, Paul, I don't think you know how kids work. Uh, in order to have kids, you have more kids, you have to have kids in the first place. And Paul's saying, hey, you're going to have way more children if you never have children. <laughs> Paul, I don't think you know what a child is then. Because you've got to have children to have grandchildren, have great-grandchildren, have great-great-grandchildren. Paul said, no, 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 you're missing the point. The point is, rejoice in your barrenness. Rejoice because there is blessing in the barrenness. There is blessing in the inability. Here's what's so fantastic news today, or such fantastic news today, is that perhaps for our entire lives, we have been in religious places, in religious spaces where people over and over and over made you feel sinful, made you feel shameful, said, you sinner, you sinner, you sinner. And the unwritten kind of dynamic behind that was, I'm not sinful, you're sinful. I'm not sinful, you're sinful. I believe in Jesus. I'm not sinful, but I know you. You're sinful. You sinner, you sinner, you sinner. And Paul says, stop. Perhaps you've been in religious places your entire life and you've been told that you are Sarah, 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 Sarah. Barren, 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 barren. And probably actually nobody ever accused you of that unless your name is Sarah and probably wasn't derogatory. But as he says this, the idea is you are Sarah, you are sinful. And what's fascinating that flips religion on, his head, on its head is that Paul is saying, blessed is your sinfulness. In other words, Embracing the realization that I am, in fact, sinful drives my awareness of a need for a Savior. That as long as I am trying to behave my way into into God's good graces, I am, in fact, trying to be a Savior in and of myself. So he said, man, rejoice. Embrace the sinfulness. Embrace the fact that you're not good enough. That you're going to be so much more productive. You're going to be so much more fruitful if you embrace your sinfulness. Perhaps you've been to churches your entire life again and you've been told Sarah, 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 Sarah and Paul says, thank God for you when you realize that you are in fact Sarah. And the people that just made that out to be a bad thing, a condemning thing, not a universally condemning thing but an individually condemning thing. You're not a good enough person. You're not acceptable to God because of what you've done, where you've been, who you've been with, misses the point that that was the entire reason why Jesus came. You see, let me say it in a way that makes sense to me at least. At the end of the month in in any organization or any business, you try to do the year end or the month end financials. And in doing that, one of the things that is a kind of a step in the process is you go through your bank account and you do what's called reconciling your bank account. Now, many of you, again, know this, but essentially what you do is you go through and you see what your books say that you have and what the bank's books say that they have. Just a quick tip. The bank's never wrong, okay? So you go through and you see what transactions have gone through, what transactions haven't gone through, and you reconcile. You make those two things compatible with each other. The understanding of the gospel is that as we embrace the fact that we are sinful, we realize that we can't reconcile those two books together. We are irreconcilable to God because we are sinful and he is holy. And there is not individual condemnation in that, though we are individually condemned. There is universal because the spirit of us, inside of us, the sinful nature is that all of us, 
have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God saw that and didn't hold that against us, but sent his son into the world. That on the cross, he died a death, taking the sin, taking the shame, taking the weight, taking the guilt, taking the condemnation that we should have felt, that we should have felt because of our sin. And he reconciled us to God, that when God sees us, he sees not uh, somebody that's a terrible person that you just happen to be forgiven. He sees you and me as he sees his son Jesus, which is crazy to me. No matter what I've done, because it's not about what I've done. It's about what his son has already done. Maybe you're in church for the first time in a long time. And that's all you need to hear today. Is that it's not about what you've done. Perhaps you've been around religious folks your entire life who made it about what you've done, what you've done, what you've done, or what you haven't done, what you haven't done, what you haven't done. It has nothing to do with your relationship. Your covenantal relationship. With your heavenly father. Or perhaps you're a Christian. You've been avoiding God. Because you know. Because you know. You haven't lived up morally. And like we all do. You've tried to avoid. Spiritually. And what began as a realization of your inability. You now try to prove your way. Through your ability. We all do it. Paul continues and says, this is, by the way, a way that you'll know that you're kind of on to something in this whole realm of life. Verse 28, now, brothers, like Isaac and children of promise. But just as that, at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it's, it is now. In other words, you kind of realize you're on to this when you begin, begin to face persecution because of this. As a differentiating idea, by the way. Paul's primary source of, of persecution was not from people who were not Christians. They were from people who were religious thought they were Christians. This was the thrust of Paul's conflict. And, you know, scripturally, in fact, not just Paul's, Jesus conflict. Christians or religious folk killed Jesus. It wasn't people who didn't believe what he believed. They just said, all right, well, I don't agree with that, but I'm going to go fishing. Not like in like a redneck way, but like that's how they provided but he'd say, you know, I'm just, just going to go do my own thing. The people, that, the people that had a problem with this was the religious folk. Let me just tell you. The more deeply ingrained in religion you are, perhaps the more difficult it is to live this out. To really grasp this. Because for so much of our lives... We are told, behave, 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 believe, 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 behave, believe, behave, believe, behave, and you are acceptable to God. God says, no. Believe and you are acceptable to me. Simply by placing your faith, your, your, your belief, your belief, we use faith, you know, kind of as a, as a weird way to describe a bunch of things that we don't know, but belief specifically, your faith specifically, your belief specifically in your inability, God's ultimate ability, in his action through Jesus, that he was the substitutionary punishment for my death, that I now have a reconciled relationship with God because of Jesus. And he would say, that belief makes you reconciled to God. That belief that inspires us 
to live more like Jesus. As Paul finishes his, his conclusion in this whole kind of theological end of the first four chapters, by the way, in chapters five and six, he moves all to application. It's going to be a wonderful next couple of weeks. He says this, verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. And if that's your mentality, you just got to, you cast that out. You get rid of that thought. You understand the truth and the reality. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free. We aren't children of works. We aren't children of God because we have earned our way, because we have deserved our way, because we have behaved our way, because we have moraled our way. It's because we believe that we couldn't. We believe that we're the Sarahs in the room. We're the barren in the room. We're the sinful in the room. So this is why it should be impossible for Christians to judge folks. Because I'm not judging you based on my morality, because I know my morality is the same as your morality. It's brokenness. It's sinfulness. Now, our mountain of sin might be different, might be made of different things, might be different heights and different levels, but we all have it. So Paul looks at him and says, come on. Don't fall into the trap of behaving your way. You knew at the beginning that it was simply through belief. So live into that now. In the end, by a couple, addressing two different groups in the last minute or two. Number one, if you're here and you are um, on the periphery of church and Jesus and Christianity, you're checking it out. Maybe you're here because, you know, it's, it's around Thanksgiving time and you're with family or perhaps you're, you know, here because you're just interested, you know, whatever it is for you, that the reason that you're here. Let me say this. My hope is that today, at least, if nothing else, you understand clearly what the gospel is. It's our realization of our inability. It is our realization, it is our, frankly, embracing that we are all Sarahs. We are all barren. We are all incapable. And we need supernatural intervention because we simply aren't good enough. And there's not condemnation in that. There's the human nature in that that's, that generally condemns us all. But Jesus supernaturally did provide that way as he did, as God did through Abraham giving Sarah the son Isaac. Jesus did for our sins by supernaturally providing the cross, our salvation. Not because of our behavior, but because of the promise. I hope you just understand that. Even if you don't believe it yet. Even if you're still wrestling with what about God and you have 35 questions, you've got, you have 350 questions and, you know, the seven-day thing and then Jonah and the, the whale, I mean, is that even realistic? You know, I understand that. I just hope you understand that because I think if we aren't on the same, let me just, this, sorry, I shouldn't say all this, but whatever. If we aren't on the same page with if Jesus was a real person, if Jesus died and rose again, if Jesus is the sole standard for my salvation, then we probably aren't going to agree on a lot of the rest of the Bible because that is the centerpiece, that is the lens through which we view everything. So I just hope you understand that. I hope you get that. I pray that you believe that, either today or at some point. But if nothing else, I just want you to understand. 
If you're in here and you're a Christian, let me close this whole thing by asking this question, which Paul asked at the beginning of chapter 3. Are you now trying to finish in the flesh what began in the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish your sanctification, your holiness, your acceptableness to God in your own flesh, of your own accord, trying to prove yourself to God? Or are you continuing in a movement of the Spirit, realizing over and over and over every single day that I can't prove my way into God's good graces? And I'm going to trust in Jesus. I'm going to rely on Jesus. And I'm going to lean, in, lean into God in my times of morality, in my times of immorality. Because I know that has nothing to do with how I am standing and who I am standing with. That God is now with me, inside of me. And I have a relationship reconciled, justified with him. Let me just tell you, if you do that, if you wake up every single day and do that, you will be more holy than you ever thought possible because our lives as Christians are consumed with projecting holiness while living in sinfulness. If we embrace sinfulness, then we become holy. We're like a bunch of out-of-shape people who want to pretend like we're marathoners. For some of us, we just need to realize that we're out of shape and start walking. Maybe someday we'll become marathoners. But as long as we pretend, 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 project, 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 we'll never become that. So embrace your serenness. Rejoice in your serenness. Rejoice in your barrenness, as Isaiah said. Because then you will have more children than you ever imagined. You'll be more fruitful. You'll be more holy than you ever thought possible. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. God, this is something that we all deal with, we all struggle with. The gravitational pull of religion is just so strong to go towards belief and behavior. I pray for every person in the room who perhaps doesn't know you or is trying to wrestle with the idea of you, Jesus. So many thoughts, so many questions, ancient documents, historic stories. God, I pray that if nothing else, they would leave here with the knowledge that the gospel is our inability because of our sinfulness, to gain a right relationship with you. That you sent your son, Jesus, as promised through Abraham, that you would see our sinfulness, send your son for our sinfulness, die on the cross to take away and to cover our sinfulness that we can have a right standing, a reconciled relationship, justified, forgiven, innocent in your sight because of you, Jesus. And I pray for every single person in here who is a Christian, who has placed their faith, their salvific existence solely in you and your work on the cross, Jesus. Would you please help us not to project but to embrace Would you please help us to not pretend like we're way better than we are, but to embrace our barrenness, embrace our serenness, embrace our sinfulness. That we would, in doing that, lean into you and be more holy. People would come to know you, Jesus, because of that. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.